This morning, we're going to be continuing our study through who God is, essentially. Um, this will be the third week uh, that we're going to be looking at this summer theological series, seeking to answer the question, who is God? Which should be about a 10-week sermon series, depending on the arrival of Isabella. Isabella is the baby's name, if you didn't know that. Uh, she should be coming at the end of August. And in an ideal setting, I can do this in 10 weeks. And if it does not get the opportunity to do it due to the birth of Isabella, it'll be how many ever weeks before that. And so with that being the case, we are going to try to do this in 10 weeks and cover some very specific topics. It may get cut off short. There's nothing I can do about that. God is in control, and we will teach and preach through whatever God would desire for us to. Um, and in that, though, is though our regular practice here at Redeemer would be preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, David and I, as we were discussing and thinking through this, uh, what would be next step for us after we finished the first part of Acts and going into the study in Philippians in which he'll be preaching. Um, the primary reason that we wanted to do this instead of another shorter book that would maybe in the Old Testament was because one of the uh, desires here at Redeemer in one of our uh, kind of vision statements per se is that we would be theologically robust. And though that happens week in and week out as we sing God's word, as we gather for the preaching of God's word, and we sit under the community groups and discuss his word fervently, and then even in other conversations that we as members have with one another, uh, this happens in all of those things, but not very specifically on certain topics. And because of that, we found that it would be helpful to do this. But also, in this study, our hope would be this, is that God would renew in us a better understanding of who He is, which should lead us to know, pray to, worship, and serve Him more faithfully in our personal lives and as a church. Now, when I started this sermon series, I didn't have the word pray there, because we focus on prayer a ton in the book of Acts. But as um, we were doing this, uh, me and a couple individuals in the, uh, in the church here were doing this study by Ligonier uh, on prayer. And in that, it was really just understanding who God was as we prayed to him. And when, when we were walking through that, it made me just remember is that understanding and knowing God better not only causes us to know, worship, and serve him, but it causes us to pray to him better too. So with that being the case, this is something I've said the last two weeks, and I will continue to say it every week. And it says, I believe that we're going to spend an eternity understanding the depth of our infinite God. And we will st still not scratch the surface of who he is. And because this is the case, there's no possible way that we can cover every aspect of this topic in 30 to 40 minutes over the next 10 weeks. So I want to just invite you that as we uh, kind of come to the end of the sermon in a little bit, we're going to eat together and then many will be in community groups or most of you have my phone number or a way to contact me to ask questions. We, we may not get all of the answers, but if you have questions that pop up in this topic, then let's certainly discuss it and try to find those answers together in the word of God. With all of that being said. This morning, we're going to be looking at the topic of the immobility of God. Now, that sounds like a very big word, and it is a very big word. It's really not that big, but it's a hard word. Immutability of God. What that simply means, though, and we're going to go over this again in just a second, is that God, the God who never changes. 
is that there's a God and it's our God and it's the God. It's the God who never changes. See, oftentimes in uh, theological discussion, we to understand who God is, we kind of contribute to him attributes. And attributes uh, is the best word to understand that, but maybe it's not a common word for you. Uh, attributes are very similar to that of characteristics. It's understanding who God is. The best way for us to understand who God is is to know his characteristics, his attributes. And through the remainder of this time in our study of who God is, we're going to look at many other attributes. We're going to look at his holiness, his sovereignty, his supremeness, his all-powerful, all-knowing, gracious, merciful, faithful, goodness, patience, and love-kindness. See, in that list of things, most of them there, it falls into a certain category, but this morning's falls into a different category. See, when we talk about these attributes of God, we talk about it in two ways. And there's going to be a lot of words this morning, and I'm sorry for that. But the two words here is incommutable and communable. All right? Incommutable and communable. Incommutable attributes are the attributes in which God alone has. They're not communicated to his creation in the sense of they do not obtain the same attributes and personalities and characteristics of God. The never changing nature of God is an incommunable attribute. A communable attribute is the attributes in which God shares with others. So, for example, on that list I just gave you. We could be knowing creatures but not all-knowing creatures. We can be gracious individuals, but we're certainly not always gracious. We can be merciful, but we're not continually merciful. We can be faithful, but not always faithful. We can be good, but not always good. We can be patient and loving, but not always patient and loving. But God is always all of those things. So we share in a nature of who He is, but some of the attributes or characteristics of who God is... We just can't share with him. And these are these incommunable attributes. And this morning, I think one of the primary ones that I think is important for us us as a church to kind of tackle and understand is that God is immutable, meaning that God never changes. And the reason why I would say this is an incommutable, this meaning that this is what God and God alone has, that we can clearly see within this room we all change. For example, I forgot your name again. Jessica's brother's name is Adam. Adam. The last time I saw Adam was at David and Jessica's wedding, which was like five years ago, give or take. And how old were you then, Adam? Eleven, right? And he was like this tall, maybe a little bit taller, but he was shorter, right? He's apparently gained like six inches this year. He's changed. He's developed. Alice Ann can't walk quite yet, can she? No, but hopefully very soon. Not for them because it's a headache when that starts happening. It's wonderful to see, but it's a pain. But she is going to be able to walk. She changes. She develops. A year ago, I had hair that was short as David's. Look at my hair now. It's not short anymore. We change. We develop. Sarah has married like 15 different men and myself. Because I have changed over the last 10 years to be totally different than I was when we met when I was 17 and she was 15. We are different people. We change. We develop. We grow. 
God doesn't. God does not change. See, James 1, 17. This is the first of many scriptures this morning. So instead of flipping, I would encourage you maybe just to write them down. James chapter 1, verse 17. This is a, a key verse for my family and I. And if you've been at my house and you've ate dinner at my table, you're going to know why as soon as I read it. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That's why we ask the question that Jessica hates so much is what is your good thing for today? But he goes on to say, coming down from the father of lights and whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change, not even his shadow per se. There's never no variation. There is no change. God is who God is. God is the same before the foundation of the world as he will when the world passes away. There is no change in God. He is the same today as it was yesterday and will be forever. The reason why we're moving to this topic after we've looked at the fact that God has revealed himself and he has created all things is because in just a few weeks, we're going to discover the topics of his holiness, his sovereignty, his supreme nature, his all powerfulness, his all knowing, his graciousness, his mercifulness, his faithfulness, his goodness, his patience and his loving. And the reality is, is because God is not changing and will never change. All of those attributes will always be the same in and of himself and as we get to the end of the sermon that is a wonderful and great thing for us that God will always be holy and always be sovereign and always be supreme and always be the most powerful and always be all-knowing and always be gracious and always merciful always faithful always good always always patient and always loving because we are not immutable it is good news for us that god is so with all of that being said i want to lay out the sermon for you in case you take notes because i don't have anything on the screen i apologize we're going to be looking at this topic of god's never changing nature or his immutability in three ways we're going to ask it in three questions essentially is what does the immutability of God mean? I know we just went to an overview of it, but what does it mean? And then we're going to look at what are some objections to the immutability of God. And there's about five or six primary uh, um, objections to it, but we're going to focus on one because it's the most common within the church. And then the third thing we're going to look at is why is God's immutability wonderful news for us? So I'm going to say those three questions again so you can follow along. Is what does immutability of God mean? What are some objections to the immutability of God? And why is God's immutability wonderful news for us? I want to say this before I continue on in the sermon by praying. Is this topic scares me to death. It is difficult. It is hard. It is one that I'm trying to grasp even as I'm prepared to preach it to you this morning. Because this is a topic that all of Christianity hinges on. Because if God changes, everything else is useless and pointless in our lives. If God changes, the promise of the Savior having a meal with us in eternity is not always going to be the case. Because He does not have to keep His promises. 
But because God is immutable and he does not change, everything hinges on that. If God was not immutable, he would not be God. The basic idea of the word God is being. Not only being, but the being. So as we tackle a topic about the being, being the being and the only the being is hard. And so I'm going to pray for God's leadership. And I want to encourage you maybe, just maybe to join me in that prayer quietly in your own heads. And so that I can do this clearly. And if I don't do it clearly, you can ask me as many questions as you want as we eat together. Okay. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you so much. God, my prayer now is that your word would expose the truth of who you are. God, this is a topic that we're not going to understand in 40 minutes. But God, this is a topic that I'll prayerfully, we will scratch the surface of it now. And God, that we will walk away with some encouraging realities of who you are and that you will never change. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So because it's such a hard topic, we're going to look at a bunch of scriptures so that scripture itself can explain who God is. Um, God has made it that way, and so we're going to rest and lean into that, okay? The first idea that we're going to be looking at is what does immutability mean of God mean? So what does it mean that God never changes? We already see that immutability means that God does not change, but what does that practically mean? Well, what it means is that it, it kind of ties into three different aspects of God and possibly more. Is that the, God is immutable in his essence, that God is immutable in his attributes, and that God is immutable in his counsel. So let's look at those three things beginning with essence. Exodus chapter 3. This is probably the best scripture about who God is that is abundantly clear while completely unclear all at the same time. Okay, But Exodus chapter 3, 13 through 15, is the moment in which Moses is called by God through the burning bush to go to his people. And he hasn't been with his people for 40 years. So he asked them, who do I say sent me? Start in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? It's a legitimate question. He's been separated from them for, for 40 years. What does God say? God says, I am who I am. And he said to them, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, if you keep reading, it says, God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel that the Lord, the God of your fathers and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this I am to be remembered throughout all of generations. So the third verse there, verse 15, is the most clear to us because we know who Abraham is. We know who Isaac and Jacob is. We know why that would be important to the people of Israel in the midst of uh, enslavement by the Egyptians. But the other phrase in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say to this people, I am sent me to you. This is what I was referring to a moment ago, is that, G that God is the being. The reason why he says I am who I am is because there's no greater name to swear to himself. It's kind of like if Tyson, for example, was at school and he says, and his teacher came up to him and says, who are you? And I don't know if he would ever identify himself as this, but he says, 
I am Tyson, the, the, the son of James and Sarah White. And he's overly um, descriptive. So he would say, and I live in wolf trails and I did this and this and this and this. There's ways in which we identify ourselves. Like men, the first thing people ask you when you meet them, and maybe some women, but most of the time men, what's the first question you're asked? What do you do? First question. Women, it's sometimes that or sometimes, do you stay home with the kids? Very, very terrible thing. But the reality is there. See, when God is explaining who God is, there's no one greater, there's no status higher to declare who he is than saying, I am who I am. His essence does not change. He is who he is. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says it this way. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It says, for I am the Lord and do not change. God, in his essence, in who he is, his, his nature does not change. From eternity past, there has never and will never be a time in which God was and will not be. God has always been and will never cease to be. God was before the foundation within the Trinity, perfectly united and sufficient with one another. And even with us in eternity with Him, He will be forever and evermore. God is perfect. He is already perfect. He is not going to evolve. He's not going to grow. He's not going to improve. He cannot change for the better or change for the worse. God in His essence is who He is. I am not a good person often. You are not good people often. You need to change. I need to change. It's called sanctification. We have to have that in our lives unless we're going to stop growing. And if we stop growing, we might as well die. We have to continue to move and grow in life, but specifically in Scripture and in knowing God. God is not like that. God does not change. If God were to change, we would be saying that God in his essence is not perfect because he had to improve in one way or another. The second thing, and we touched on this a moment ago, is that God is immutable in his attributes. Whatever attributes made up God before the foundation of the world, before he created the universe, they are the same now and they will always be the same. His word and his faithfulness is forever. Psalm 119, 89 through 90. It says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. God's word and faithfulness is forever. It will never change. His love is eternal. Jeremiah 31, 3, the people that are going through exile. What does God say to them? The Lord appeared to him from far away and says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. God's love and faithfulness will never end. He loved his own until the end. John 13, 1, at the beginning of the high priestly prayer. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come 
to depart out of the world to the Father having loved His own who were in the world, He left them to the end. If you keep reading in that Scripture, it also says, not only for those who are with Me, but those who will believe upon their witness. His mercy will never cease. Psalms 100 verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. God's attributes never die down or change. I'm going to pause here because an attribute of God that we so easily forget sometimes, ignore, and want to paint in a different picture is the attribute of God's wrath. And the reality is, is so many, many individuals believe or convince themselves to believe that one day, maybe God's wrath will change and he will relent. And I will say, as we've already celebrated this morning, the only way in which God's wrath will relent against his creation is if they have trusted in Jesus. And just as God's love is eternal and just as his mercy is eternal and his word will last forever and his faithfulness is forever, his wrath is forever too. So we can lean in and trust in the the faithfulness and lovingness and mercifulness of God as people that have been redeemed by Christ. But the reality is, is there's a world around us and there's even Christians around us, proclaiming Christians around us, that believe in some way or another that God will relent regardless of their faith in Jesus or not. And it is our jobs as Christians... In the reality of God's wrath being immutable, not changing, being forever, it is our job as Christians to proclaim the gospel to individuals so that the God of wrath that will never quit pouring out his wrath on his creation that has rebelled and turned against him and not trusted in Jesus, it is our job as Christians to tell them about the good nature of God that desires to redeem and save And as he saves them, he will hold them fast forever and forevermore. God is immutable in his attributes. God is also immutable in his counsel. What this means... We're going to get more on this topic as we walk through his sovereignty and all-knowingness, all-powerfulness, and all those things that his will will never vary or change. And in just a moment, the next section of the sermon, the next point of the sermon is asking the question, what are some objections to the immutability of God? I'm going to read in this understanding of God's immutable and his counsel, 1 Samuel 15, 29, in just a second. But I'm also going to read that same set of scripture in the next section of what is some objections to, because this is where most of the objections of who God is being immutable comes into play. Because some people, according to, and and, and if we're going to be honest, Scripture even points to the fact that God repents and God changes his mind and that God has passions and all those things. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But I just want to let you know that's coming so that we can understand first and foremost that God is immutable in his counsel. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that should regret. God does not regret his decisions. 
Now, we're going to see in just a moment where it says God regrets, and we're going to handle that in just a moment. Job 23, 13 says, But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires that he does. But we also see that God's purposes never alters. Hebrews 6, 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, with a promise, with a covenant. God never changed in his decrees, his will, and his actions. God is not a father like I am that makes a decision that quickly has to ask forgiveness of said decision. God is a father of the universe that is working out his perfect will and he does not regret any area of that will. God is immutable in his counsel and he is working out his perfect will in all things. He does not change. He does not alter. His purposes stay the same. His will stays the same. And the greatest example of this, and this is not on my notes, is in Genesis when God calls Abraham. He says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And then right after that, he says, and your descendants, they're going to be enslaved for 400 years by the enemy. And what happens as Genesis unfolds? Is what happens? Isaac, Jacob, Joseph ends with Joseph. Joseph's in Egypt. Exodus begins. What does Exodus begin? The enslavement of God's people for 400 years. God's will and decree is immutable, it does not change. Now, maybe you're like me. And now we've got to the point that you care most about and you want to know what are the objections and how do I share a consistent argument against those objections to those who may point these out to my life. Uh, the big word for that would be a, uh, well, never mind. My word just left me. Uh, what's that called? Apologist. Sorry. Uh, maybe you want to know the apologetic approach to answering this question. And the question is very simply, uh, what are some objections to the immutability of God, immutability of God? And as I said earlier, there's about five or six of these that come to play. Uh, more or less, uh, we see that Jesus was born, so therefore God had to have changed in some sense or another. But then you're getting into the two natures of God where Jesus didn't change uh, in his divine nature, but he changed in his earthly nature because he's 100% God, 100% man. And there's other ones that I think are less argumentative. There's other ones that are, I think, um, that are not as uh, staunch of an argument. I think the biggest one is that is we're going to be transparent about Scripture. I think the biggest one is does God change his mind? Because we, we saw here that if God is immutable in his essence and his attributes and his counsel, then what about scriptures that says God changes his mind? For example, let's look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had, had man on, on earth, and he grieved him to his heart. If God's immutable, then how can he regret and how can he grieve? What about Exodus 32, 10 through 14? It says, now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against 
them and I may consume them in order that I may make them a great nation. This is right after golden calf situation. Uh, picking up in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord in him and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did they bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he has spoken of being bringing on his people. So if God is a God who does not change, if he's immutable in his counsel, then how does it say that God relented from the disaster that he has spoken to bring about on his people? One more example, and there's a ton of them. There's not as many as there is in the argument against them. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10. When God saw what they had did, how they had turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster and he said that he would do to them. And he did not do it. So, three examples here of God either regretting, relenting, or forgiving. Or relenting again. How do we shape those with the idea that God is immutable? How do we reconcile that with other scripture that says God does not change? And I think it's because of two ways. And I'm going to try to say these words right. You're not going to remember the words. You're going to wonder why I said the words. But I'm going to have to say them. And I'm going to explain them in just a moment. Um, but oftentimes in Scripture, uh, God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, the individuals wrote in two different ways. Anthropomorphism and anthropopathic. All right, Anthropomorphism is an example of which God is described by having arms and hands, a face, eyes, feet. The language is meant to help render understanding what God is, like by using language that he, the readers would better understand. For example, Exodus 6.6. 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring them out under the burdens of Egypt and I will deliver them from slavery and I will rend, uh, redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Leviticus 20 verse 6. If a person turns to mediums and, and necromants and whoring after them. I will set my face against the person and will cut them out from among the people. Or even go back to um, Gen- uh, Exodus 32 verse 13. Well, 12. It says, why do Egyptians say with evil intent to bring them out and kill them in the mountains and consume them in the face of the earth? Turn your burning anger and relent and the disaster will come upon them. And remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants of them who swore his own self. And I will multiply over them his land and have promised I will give offspring and shall be forever. The Lord relented. But right before all of that, since I read all of that in vain, you see in verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord and God and said, O God, why does your wrath burn with hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? 
Oftentimes in Scripture, the authors use these anthropomorphisms so we can understand. It's a way in which they writ to describe God in physical ways so that we can understand the nature of who God is. Because God, God the Father is spirit. He is not human like you and I. He does not have a face. He does not have a hand. He does not have an arm. He doesn't have legs to walk with. God is not a God that is physical. God is a God of spirit. And so the authors of these examples are writing in such a way that the people of God would understand the nature of who God is. Much like the book of Revelation. We often, you know, you can get into arguments about what it's talking about, when it's talking about, all those things, right? But when you read the book of Revelation, you see a lot of crazy things, right? You see a lot of amazing things. Like the whole streets of gold situation or the pearly gate situation, all of those realities. Guess what? Are the streets actually made out of gold? Who knows? But the point being is that when John was inspired to write this and he sees this vision of the Lord, what he sees is streets that are greater than anything that he has ever seen or ever thought of in his life. And so what does he say the streets are made of? The greatest thing on the earth that he knew to man was gold. So he's writing in such a way that his audience would understand what he's talking about. Scripture does the same thing in using physical attributes of God so that we can understand and know him in that way. And just kind of a side note, he always uses the right hand because a majority of the people in history have been right-handed. So the powerful hand's the right, the weak hand's the left. Okay? All right. But the other way in which he writes is anthropopathic, which is very similar But it's not physical, but it's more emotional. It's described or thought of having a human form and human attributes. That God is described to be a God who relents or a God who uh, or a God who changes or a God who does these uh, mental things so that we can understand that God is actually not actually changing, but God is doing something in such a way that we can understand it. Because if I said, hey, look, God didn't actually relent, but this was his plan from the beginning of time, and that he had his means and he had his mode, and his modes fulfilled the means and his means fulfilled the mode, and so therefore God was working out something, and the way in which God worked it out was he was using the intervention of man to change his his decision, quote-unquote, but he didn't actually change his decision, but he ordained the end and the beginning and the means in which would change it does that make any sense no but God writes scripture in such a way that it would make sense to us so that we can understand it for example in first Samuel 15 I told you we're going to get there first Samuel 15 verse 11 we're also going to look at 28 because we see this word regret twice look at it, it says I regret that I have made Saul king For he had turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Saul was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. Well, we can think back to the calling of Saul as king. And what does God say? He says, this is the king that you wanted, not the king I desired. So God knew from the beginning this was going to be the king that would not follow after his heart. He says, for the king I desire will come after him, which was King David. But look at verse 28. So this makes practical sense for us. And and it says this. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to the neighbor of yours who is better than you. God is not a God who regrets. 
God is a God that is written of regretting so that we can understand that he was changing something and doing something different than he had pointed out before. Not because he is actually regretting and changing, but rather so that we can understand that God was working and doing and having a means of the end. God is not a God who regrets, changes, or disagrees with himself from a previous time. There's other objections in this. And I know this may not be the most satisfying one for those that are thinking through this on more of an intellectual level. But we see this throughout church history. That until a more modern day, this idea of God changing in thought and in process and emotions is new. That from the Reformation on in Protestant history, it was assumed that God's emotions and things of that nature was the same as his physical attributes described in Scripture. That it was an anthropathic way in which describing himself. So does God actually change his mind? No. God uses people to fulfill his means. For example, I'm convinced that God being a sovereign and all-knowing and omnipotent God, God will not be surprised when one individual enters into heaven. God will know exactly who is saved. How you want to determine how he knew, that's between you and scripture and all of those things. It's not the point of this morning's example. The point being is us as finite creatures, we have no clue. We have no idea who God is going to save, who will be in heaven with us, who will not be in heaven with us. We have no clue whatsoever. We don't see the heart of man. We see what's on the outside. God sees the heart of man now, and, and what's on the outside, right? God is doing something in saving people. And what is his means to save and redeem them? As we saw throughout the book of Acts, men and women that proclaim the gospel. So God is working and he's doing. And the means in which he is doing it is you and I proclaiming the gospel. But he's not surprised when he sees fruit growing because he is not the planter or the or he's not the planter or the sower. But rather, he is the water provider. He is the grow giver. He is the redeemer. He's the savior. He's the omnipotent one that calls people to himself and they respond accordingly. God is not surprised and God is not he will not be surprised in heaven and be like, oh, you actually made it here? No. Everyone who will be in heaven, God knew from the foundation of the world according to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, with all of that being said, we see what it is. We see some objections to it, at least one. So then the question that stands is why... Is God's immutability good news for us? I want to say this one on the front end before I get to any of this. Is I was actually listening to Kevin DeYoung preach or teach this. I listened to it three different times and I was still baffled every time because, man, he's so smart. And he quoted so many more people I've never heard of and he can read Latin and all those things. Uh, I, and he did that and he did that well. Um, but he, he quoted John Piper in that sermon at the very beginning of it. And John Piper says, sometimes the application of the sermon is very simply, behold your God, glorify Him. 
So before I get into any of the good reasons that this is fantastic news for us, I want to say first and foremost is behold your God. He is immutable. He does not change, will never change, has not changed. He is the same God in eternity past as he will be in eternity long. God is God. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be glorified. We can rest in him. Worship him. Praise him. Glorify him. Live for him. Die for him. Parrot for him. Work your job for him. Walk your dog for him. Go to school for him. Glorify him in everything because he is immutable and he is God. Now, with all that being said, let's look at some good news that's more pointed and directed at us. I want to read Psalms 146 verses 3 through 4. It says this. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Now, look, that's a downer, right? Is the psalmist writing to the people of God and says, look, don't trust in man. They're going to hurt you. I think that's a reality for all of us. Like, I, I think I know the people in the room, but I want to raise your hands for me. Just some interaction here because this is very long. All right. Raise your hand if you're married. Okay. Michael wants to raise his hand so bad, but he just can't. Uh, anyway. All right. So I, I know who's been married the longest. How long have you guys been married? 18 years. All right. 18 years. I've been married. Huh? 18 years today? Happy anniversary. All right. We have been married for nine years, almost. We have almost been married for nine years. September the 7th, 19, uh, 2009, uh, 2013, 2013. September makes nine years. Earlier, I made the statement that Sarah has been married to 10 to 15 different men and myself over the last nine years. What that means is that I have changed tremendously since the day we met. And some of those changes were terrible. And if you're married, you know this. Or if you have brothers or sisters or parents, you know this. We're not always good people. You can't depend on your spouse. Kids, you can't always depend on your parents. Though we want to act like you can, you can't always. We're going to fail you. We're going to mess up. That's the reason why I often have to ask forgiveness of my kids. And it's terrible asking a three-year-old to forgive you. We change. We make mistakes. We err. We fault. But at the end of the day, we're going to die. And we're not always going to be here for the people that we love and care for. We may try to do our best, but we're going to fail people. This is a a big part of who we are at Redeemer is that we know, look, you're going to hurt somebody in this room at some point. You're going to tick them off. You're going to make them mad. They're going to be upset with you. You're going to have to ask for forgiveness. They're going to have to forgive you. It's a part of being a Christian body of believers that we're going to hurt each other and we're going to have to forgive each other and understand that that is the nature that God has given us in Christ Jesus. Okay? This is the reality. There's no man, no woman that will always be there for us. There's some that are better than others. That will be more consistent than others. But we're going to fail you. 
you're going to fail them. We'll look at Psalms 102, 25 through 27. Of the old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. God will last longer than the foundation of the earth and the heavens, that he will change them like a robe. Does anybody wear robes in this room? How easy is it to put on a robe? Easy. It's the easiest thing to throw on, right? You throw it on, you throw it over. That's how God will change everything at the end of this life. His power is so mighty that the psalmist declares it as if we're putting on a robe. God will last forever. He laid the foundations of the earth and He will last long past it. There is no altering in God. He will never end. He will never fail. He will never falter. Deuteronomy 32.4 The rock, His work is perfect. For all of His ways are justice. And God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and purest is He. God is our rock. There is one we can depend and trust in, and He is the I Am. Romans 8.28 And for we know that for all who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. If God is immutable, if God does not change, if God is the rock, if God is the one that will outlive and outlast the foundations of the world and everything else, then He is a God that can be trusted. He is a God that can be depended upon. He is a God that we can lean into and onto. And He is a God that we cannot surprise with our own wickedness. He is a God that we can seek forgiveness of. He is a God that we can pour out to. He is a God that can be there for us no matter what. Because nothing is surprising to Him. He is God.